we're trying to understand what is the behavior of these proteins in nature and what links them together. Even one might be from Antarctica and one might be from a rainforest, but they both evolve the same function. So why, why have they done that? We hear more news every day about artificial intelligence carving out new places in our everyday lives. Some of these may feel a bit scary, but Dr. Ahir Pushpana and his team at Basecamp Research are using the power of AI and big data to make a positive impact on the worldwide enzyme platforms landscape. It's a massive undertaking, but it's quite exciting too. Welcome to another season five episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I'm your host, Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Pushpanath about his multinational upbringing and how his family shaped his early interests in the sciences. I was born in India in a little known town called Secunderabad, which is next to uh, Hyderabad. And um, when I was very young itself, um, my mum, she took me and my uh, older brother, four years old, all the way to Africa uh, because my dad works for Oxfam. So Africa was our new adventure. Of course, I didn't know any better because I was just a baby at that point. But there I was in Zambia for five years. I was in Zimbabwe for three years. Um, and then we just followed our dad, really, everywhere he went. And um, I think that really owed a lot to who I became as well as a person uh, because of that upbringing and the multicultural kind of uh, exposure I had. Uh, so Vietnam was a place I was there for three years. Bosnia was a place I was there for a year, right after the kind of Balkan War. So um, all of that has shaped who I am. What do you remember of these years? What is, what is the strongest memory in your mind? You know, in Africa, I think it's the perfect place to grow up as a kid because there's so much like wildlife there in general. And, you know, obviously the tourist attractions of safaris and things, those are my fondest memories of Africa. And just going to school, because I went to a local school there and um, having to like learn the, the language in Zimbabwe, especially Shona, they call the language there. You know, it was completely different from what we spoke at home, which is Tamil. And then English was also being spoken. So I was like, why is everyone speaking different languages? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but that was Africa. Vietnam, it was a growing experience. It was adolescence. And then Bosnia was a very, very unique, unique experience. I think there, the biggest memories I have is actually how war affects so much and how much progress is actually stifled by war. Um, there was also a little bit of racism for the first time I felt in, in Bosnia because it wasn't just because of racism. It was the fact that they didn't want any foreigners anymore in the country. They'd just been through all this war. They just want to be left alone. So all of that was really, really good character building, wanting to explore the unknown that came very quickly. Uh, and just because you were always exposed to new things, you knew that the world was not limited, that there was always something new to learn, always something new to discover. And this is probably one of the reasons why science also became you know, uh, one of the subjects that I most associated with, because it's always about don't accept the truth, push for the next. If there's something else out there that challenges your perception uh, and status quo, um, and especially the, you know, the, the Africa situation again, you know, the animals and whatnot. I was infatuated with biology to begin with, um, especially zoology. And then it became as I grow older and older, I was more and more intrigued by going deeper and deeper into biology from the from the macro scale all the way down to the micro scale this is fascinating you know so your interest in in, in science you know spans out of your sort of personal experience so you did your phd if i remember well at ucl didn't you yeah so it's a bit of a mix i did my undergrad at ucl and uh, across the road is birkbeck university who um, believe it or not they have a really really good structural biology department um, even uh, Rosalind Franklin, uh, the, the kind of the DNA icon, 
she was there as well at Birkbeck. So Birkbeck was where I did my PhD and it was very structural biology focused, but the specific project I did was not structural biology. It was more to do with industrial biocatalysis. So that's actually where it all began. Um, and even that one, I wouldn't say it's how we view biocatalysis now, where it's usually for pharma applications and fine chemicals. But at that point, it was for biofuels that they were doing. So um, it's still enzymes doing catalysis, but it was for biofuels. Yeah. And how did you end up doing that? Was it like a sort of conscious choice or was it an opportunity that happened on you? Uh, did you stumble across it or was it like an engineer's the direction you took? I think this is again stems from my mom, right? So she was always saying higher education is important. If you're going to be in science, you know, you need to do a master's, you need a PhD. A PhD is what she wanted to do, but never got the option to do. So there was a bit of that going on as well in the background from a family perspective. Uh, but PhD is what I also wanted to do. I wanted to learn more. As I said, that's the best way to learn more. And I chose that specific PhD project because it had an industrial connection. It was not just a pure academic one. It was a case PhD, which in the UK is usually linked with a uh, industrial partner. Uh, it was a small startup company called BioCaldol that had discovered this alternative way of doing biofuel. And they were teaming up with Birkbeck to find specific enzymes in their pathway that we could potentially optimize for that pathway. So it was an enzyme discovery type of work. It was, it was, yeah. It was an enzyme discovery, enzyme development, and it had a clear purpose and application behind it, which I could get behind. I was like, oh, if I solve this, I solve a problem with the world right now, right? At that point, it was all biofuels. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting. Uh, you, you, you raised something, you know, if you think about yourself back then, you know, uh, was you were at grad school or, um, you know, in your early days in your career and, and, and about yourself now, you know, what's, what's your driver? You, you know, you mentioned, hey, I'm going to work on a big thing. I'm going to save the world, right? But, this, but you also mentioned, you know, the sort of, uh, scientific mind of your mom's and you know uh, your sort of natural instinct was what scientific you know what what takes you out of bed in the morning I, I think the first one is definitely the reason for my existence I would say right I mean you need to exist with a purpose like what are you put on this earth to do you have to do something either you give back to people you give back to education or, or you, you have to do that and that was coming from my dad but from the point of view of having that lofty principle means that you have to live towards achieving that principle. And that came from my mom. So I was like, What's, what am I good at? I, I like analytical thinking. I like science. Science drives me. I get up in the morning because of, of this promise of solving something towards the higher principle. And I think a combination of that was perfect for me. Um, and I really, really, really think that, that I owe a lot to my mom and dad. And I can't keep overstating this. Yeah. Did you have any, besides your family, did you have any sort of important p person on your path, you know, any, any, any mentor or anybody you've seen as a sort of example that inspired you or sort of helped you uh, at any moment? I mean, there were two teachers, you know, teachers, sometimes we underestimate how important and influential they are. Yeah. In a, in a, in a person's life, um, especially in that young development age, I think it was in Vietnam. I had a, um, social studies professor, uh, who actually was very inspirational the way he was talking about society is not defined just by culture and whatnot it's defined by technology as well and that was a really really like eye-opening statement from me like oh i never thought about social aspects and he was so ahead of his age you know and then social media and all that stuff came out later i was like oh, wow this is completely different now how society is shaped by technology um so that was a great teacher that inspired me um weirdly enough his first name was paulo as well really in vietnam <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe American Italian he was. So um, that was pretty good. 
Did you have the sort of computational element in your studies from the beginning, or is this something that you added later on? Oh, this is computational one. Actually, you know why it stems? It's from my uh, love of gaming, because I used to be such an avid gamer, and I was always into computers because of that. And because I was so into winning the game, I used to think of like different ways I could win the game. And like, what could I do in the computational world itself to win the game? And that, that became ingrained in the way I started thinking. Like, could I do shortcuts, you know? Like I was obsessed with shortcuts on Microsoft Word and Excel. Like, oh, I could beat you at doing this faster than... So it was a very competitive thing that started very early. And then weirdly enough, I started learning programming and stuff like that because it helped me in some way to do you know, the tools and whatnot to, yeah, to, to do better in the game. Um, and then lo and behold, I chose this PhD because it had elements of computational in it. And I said, oh my God, this is perfect. I, I, I did computational chemistry back in my, during my PhD and, and I always found it extremely insightful, right? So you're almost feeling like you can touch the molecules. Th- things that, you know, are, are the wet lab scientist doesn't really perceive. Um, but it's kind of tricky to combine the computational and the experimental elements. I feel like you stride the right balance. You know, have you ever thought about it? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I did struggle with it when I was doing my PhD time because I was obviously fascinated by the computational aspect. And going to what you were saying, I feel like it's the senses that drive it, right? As you said, you know, you can see the molecule and whatnot. I was fascinated with like visual stuff. So it was hard for me myself to strike a balance. But then I realized that honestly, they're all going to be models ultimately until you see some other proof, another validation. And I didn't view almost, I didn't even see experimental as the only validation. I also viewed it as another validation, right? And I think this is the big thing in my mind. I was like, we shouldn't view these two things as polar opposites. They are both different methods in trying to search for the truth. This is how I pitch it to people that are skeptics about computational that this is another data set that gives credence to your experimental results, right? Or the other way around, you know, if you've done your experiment or whatnot, I have to generate something that fits in with your logic and we can make it a, a happy marriage between these both two worlds. Yeah, this is so well said. You know, I've always thought that the computational chemistry community very often or too often ends up being focused on themselves, right? And don't get me wrong, theoretical chemistry is really important, right? And, you know, the foundations you need for all the fancy tools that then you use on, on your daily basis. But it doesn't really matter whether there's one more kilocalorie per mole or one less, right? It, it's, it's and, 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 you know, from a similar perspective, from the experimental viewpoint, it doesn't really matter what the number is. What really matters is what it means, right? What's the story behind the data you're seeing? If you manage to meet the two and you know use use the models to explain the data, use the data to support the model, whatever, right? Um, that that really helps you bring it forward more more quickly. Because I was also doing the lab work in my PhD, that was perfect for me because I also understood the pains of lab work and also the the fact that. How could you make the pain less by being more predictive on the computational side? So, you know, I was almost thinking of it as this is a way to make the lab life easier, right? It should be the way, because if it's just another add-on tool, that in itself is not enough. Like, where's the purpose? And that goes back to what you said about what's the story? Where does it go after that? It's not just building a model. Have you actually accomplished something with that? Have you actually helped someone's, someone's you know, uh, burning out uh, in the lab, for example? Uh, save their time. How how has your mind evolved um, in the way you use these tools? Um, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm sure the way you do computational chemistry today is 
is a lot different than, than you know from from ten years ago, right? And, and is is anything that you were doing back then still valid, or is the landscape completely changed? So I think there is a big big fish in the computational biology. Um, you know the big big breakthrough with AlphaFold, I think, has uh, has changed the landscape significantly. <clears throat> and it, in a lot of ways, actually, it speaks volumes um, to how the technology industry had to step in. You know, Google had to step in to break a, a, a fundamental dogma in biology. And it's kind of shown that when some other breakthroughs in adjacent fields are happening, that's your chance for this field to go forward. And to going back to your point about being closed-minded, if no one in this community looked at the technical or the technology industry, that's one of the reasons why we're in this state where only now we made that breakthrough. Maybe if we adopted computational and technology far earlier, maybe we wouldn't have been in that scenario. But that's been the biggest game changer, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because in science in general, the you know, you see the biggest leaps at the boundaries, right? And you know, the alpha fold example is so so nice and worth going more into, right? For the benefit of our audience, would you would you like to explain what AlphaFold is and what the problem is sort? The protein structure is really what defines the function. And that's been a, a kind of dogma in the field for a long time. They're saying if you understand the structure of how a protein is, then you're able to infer with a greater accuracy what kind of function this has. But solving the structure is not an easy task. Uh, it's x-ray crystallography. is a difficult process. Going back to Birkbeck University, that's what they were professionals at, right? They, they were very good at doing X-ray crystallography. And because of this work of these, uh, of these giants of X-ray crystallography, we have at least a sizable number of structures that we can work with. Um, nowhere near the amount of protein sequences we have. Protein sequences are in the millions. Protein structures are in the hundred thousands. But still, there's this gap. There was a big gap between sequence and structure. And only by having enough structural knowledge were people in the, in the kind of the frame set that we can solve the complex function problems. Um, so AlphaFold was a kind of deep learning based methodology that uh, took into account um, the sequence alignments. In essence, there was two components to it, but the, the deep learning bit and a, um, a kind of evolutionary training bit and bringing those two worlds together, they're now able to just give a sequence and it can give out a structure with a very, very high confidence. Um, and this has going has huge effects for drug discovery, uh, for biocatalysis itself, for enzyme development, and for all kinds of other applications. So the, the knowledge of the structure was a big limiting and stumbling block. And now we have just opened up this. It's like a kid in a candy shop. Like all the other biologists are like, oh my God, we have all these structures now. Now it's time for idea creation. How do we go for the next step? I haven't been able to follow it very closely in, in its evolutions. You know, how are we in the sort of... Uh, sequence to structure prediction game right now are we able to reliably predict tertiary and quaternary protein structures uh, or is there any sort of uh, limitations to overcome still yeah no i think there's a lot more to obviously build on but the, the kind of the big groundwork in prediction that's the one that was missing and that's now there so at least you have something uh, that you can play with. And then there's going to be more iterations. There's a lot of other people have gotten into the structure prediction game as well. There's ESM fold. You've got Rosetta fold. You know, David Baker, he's a big name in the field. He's always been saying that, yes, alpha fold is a breakthrough and it's great. We can have this. But do we still fundamentally understand how sequences fold? No, we don't. Not so much. Yeah, exactly. So, so he's right as well. Like only after we've understood that can we really think about designing our own proteins and whatnot with great accuracy. This is fascinating, right? Because it's conceptually, it's nothing new, right? We, well, nothing new. 
uh, the scale is, is new, but you know, we used to do QSAR, right? You know, some sort of structure activity correlations or uh, you know, correlating different properties back in the day, right? It doesn't really define what intelligence really is. It's, it's just a, a massive correlation game, right? Finding patterns, isn't it? Pattern, yeah. AI is ultimately a good pattern finder. That's what it is. And if you have the right data sets, then you're going to find the right patterns. And it took this long for that structural, uh, you know, that body of structural X-ray crystallography knowledge to then be applicable to AI. So it couldn't have been done before if you think of it that way. You know, the data sets didn't exist. And I, that's a point that I'll bring up later about the, some of the stuff I'm doing at Basecamp. Because fundamentally, at the bottom of all of that is the data set. If you collect the right data set, your AI is going to be far better. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. If you're a chemist, you might have enjoyed purchasing Alpha Azar or Acros organic products over the years. I just wanted to remind you that you can keep doing it. These two portfolios have merged and rebranded into Thermo Scientific Chemicals. You can find them on thermofisher.com or fishersci.com and through many other scientific product distributors in your area. And now, back to our conversation. Let me step back because I think it's useful for the for, for ourselves in our chat, but also for ensuring it's clear for non-insiders, right? So biocatalysis was basically born from, hey, let's find out nature has all these natural catalysts, you know, proteins around, they, they can make some incredible reactions happen, right? Um, and so the phase one of the field was discovery. And once we started having a, a, a sort of baseline, of some, some fundamentals, some foundations there, then people start to say, hey, this is not good enough. How can we modify this stuff to make them, you know, more suitable to what we want to make, right? Uh, um, and then, you know, the two main school of thought, schools of thoughts uh, uh, were born. Just people say, okay, so I need to understand how the protein is, is made, you know, and all this crystallography stuff, and I'm going to do, do irrational. I'm going to take what I know of the protein. I'm going to start changing here and there because I want to introduce new functionalities. And then you have the other school. So say, hey, let's leverage what nature already does because nature does that. Let's kind of put the organism in a certain type, under certain type of pressure. And let's see what happens if I can develop new properties, right? In a random way and then in a more and more directed and, you know, sophisticated way. What, what is your heart? So how, how do you feel about this? And I know it's complex and it's probably there isn't a straight answer. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's actually a great question because you touched upon a few things about biocatalysis history itself. And I think uh, that's where my answer lies because of the history. If you look at how it started off, it, as you said, you know, it was all a discovery project and there just wasn't enough enzymes known uh, back then until the whole sequencing and, uh, and synthesis, DNA synthesis revolution happened. And then molecular biology happened right after that. You know, the molecular biology of putting DNA from another host organism into E. coli, for example. So all those things had to happen for biocatalysis to, to, to come to where it is at the moment. Evolution, directed evolution was a big, big role to make industrial enzymes. However, the, the computational age, I think well, I'm going to call this now, is really all about understanding. And I think it, I feel like it should be about understanding because only with that understanding, we can go to the next age of biocatalysis. So I have always been in your boat as well. Finding out why have these mutations actually made this difference is so important for the future. 
it may not be always the same in industry. You know, once you're doing the mutation, you find something that works, you're not bothered about trying to explain why it's worked. You're like, it's worked. Let's take it forward. Let's commercialize. And that's the big, big difference. So academics have been relied on a lot to understand and deconvolute mutations and tell us why these things have worked. But now we're at the age with computational power. It shouldn't just be academics that are trying to deconvolute mutations. Everyone in industry can do it as well. Uh, we have all this alpha fold. We have structure function relationships. Take the time. Take the time to find out why this has worked a particular way. That's my biggest takeaway from that. Tell me a bit more about what you're doing from this perspective at Basecamp. So as I was saying before, you know, first of all, we are doing global exploration. One of the things we have noticed is that the public data sets of enzyme sequences, they may look like they are very vast and we've done a lot of work and millions exist already. But when you take a closer lens, they're actually really biased. And it's because people have not done global exploration the way that it should be done. There is so much life that is undiscovered and unexplored. So that was the crux of the company. You know, they said, that's it, guys. We are going to do global exploration. We're going to do it the right way, though. We're going to go to all these countries. We're going to negotiate access and benefit sharings and, uh, and comply with international laws and get commercial permits to sample from all these areas following the Nagoya Protocol. Um, and then once we've got all that in place, we're going to build a purpose-built database to feed AI and see whether we can understand the rules that govern protein function. So this is, this is un uh, underlying the whole technology platform here. We have built this map of nature. I don't even like calling it a database because it is truly is a map. Um, and we're visualizing it in the same way that companies like Facebook, for example, they use these graph algorithms uh, borrowed from deep learning. These graph algorithms are perfect in understanding behavior uh, and relationships between people. For example, in Facebook, they use it to even detect criminals based on their activity and, their, and you know, what they're up to. Even though they're very, very different people, no one would say that these two people are criminals. Something in their behavior is linking them that uh, they might have criminal tendencies. That is what we're trying to build for the protein world. We're trying to understand what is the behavior of these proteins in nature and what links them together. Even one might be from uh, uh, Antarctica and one might be from a rainforest, but they both evolve the same function. So why, why have they done that? And Basecamp are the only uh, people at the moment that have this resource that we've built. And this data set gives us a huge advantage in AI, both AI assignment of proteins to uh, catalysis and also AI design of new proteins for other applications as well. So what are the latest estimation or how much diversity is still to be discovered in the world? I mean, the, some of the journals that I've read, they go up to saying that 99% of the micro uh, um, biodiversity is underexplored, like it's unexplored. Um, and we uh, apparently we only understand less than 1% of that of the known sequence space as well. So, so you know, it's, it's limitless, right? And, and uh, I think only if you set your goal to do this, you will actually do it the right way. Otherwise, you're just, you know, you're going to be happy with whatever you get. And then you're going to test it, whatever, something works. And then you don't bother doing the, the big picture. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't know much about all these things. But, you know, I, I remember, you know, dipping my toes into some of the extremophiles world. And, you know, seeing some of their proteins was kind of amazing back then. right? And it was no more than curiosity. But, you know, they look so different, uh, right? And uh, yet they have similar functions. And, and it's, uh, it's incredible how diverse nature can really be. It's, it's fascinating. 100%. So we, we've actually done quite a bit in, the, in that kind of sense of finding sequences that may look very, very different, but they're able to catalyze the same function. And we're able to do that using deep learning. 
based on the data set that it has. And that's been the biggest advantage because other people in the field right now are looking at similar structures, trying to see maybe some mutations here and there can give a different function. Or maybe if I mutate the other protein, I can get the same function of this one. You know, they're always playing in that structure function place in that space. But if you have the rules that have governed specific behavior, you're able to then go, ah, no, let's just look in this part of the world, in this environment, you'll find the same function. Now, the name of the companies makes makes total sense, right? <laughs> it's quite clear why right, it's called yeah. Basecamp. Exploration. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, how, how does it, I'm curious now, how, how does it work? Do you, do you guys truly go, do you have a team that goes and explores and samples? Honestly, I sit next to an Antarctic deep diver. Like, this is how cool this team is, um, that's, going to deep sea. That's the proper yeah. scientist in the public imaginary, right? You should, like, be, like, yeah, you know, Lara Croft, or, you know, that's in the archaeology space. Yeah, you'd like be your absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and they do have a lot of publicity as well. So it's, it's my time. This is my time to shine now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's stop speaking about that. Let's be about, you know, the, the, the biochemistry yeah. of it. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And how, how does the business model work? You know, how do you guys, um, you know, where is, where is the money coming from? Yeah, essentially. So this we are obviously a for-profit uh, organization. Um, what we're doing is trying to be in the middle between the biodiversity guardians on one side and the biotechnology industry on the other side. So this these two really should be collaborating a lot more than they are at the moment. And the reason they're not doing it is because of all these, uh, you know, international regulations that they need to abide by. Um, so by standing in the middle and... And being the, the person that handles all of that relationship, we are now valuing biodiversity as an asset. And this is important. Biotechnology can come to us, all the industry can come to us to access biodiversity that they never uh, would have accessed otherwise. So we make revenue from the biotechnology companies by providing a solution with our AI design tools. Uh, and once we make a revenue, we pass on some of that revenue back to the biodiversity guardians and the local partners that have helped us collect some of these samples as well. So it's not just our own field scientists that go out. We also build local capacity and partnerships everywhere we go. Uh, this, this, this is great. Uh, I, I didn't know and, 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 and sound, sounds really amazing. And uh, from the pure scientific perspective, I, I like how you're meeting this, the, the origin of biocatalysis with the most modern bit that is right now at the moment, right? You know, it's, it's the discovery element, right? And, and, there's the, and there's the learning, right? The deep learning element of it. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's two different things. We always, you know, we always say we're combining nature and AI. That's like our kind of flag, flagship line, so to speak. How, yeah. how much fun is that? <laughs> well, it's probably more fun for the field scientists that I should go out into nature. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, uh, I'm afraid if you if you deep dive in Antarctica, you're gonna die, mate. So you know you're rather staying in the <laughs> computation. Yeah, I've got the cozy cozy office job. Yeah, so. yeah, you got. You've I got should be go thankful. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all the comforts. So uh, you know, everybody to his his trade. You're you're obviously a great scientist, but you know you you sell it well, and you have this sort of people skill that is quite rare in technical people, mm. right? And well, you have it, Paolo, so maybe not that rare. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I'm not a scientist anymore. You know, I haven't been, they don't want me in the lab, right? You don't want me. <laughs> you know, are you, do, you, do, you, do you still see yourself doing what you're doing now in 20 years? Yeah, so, 
you know, you were actually one of my uh, first mentors in Johnson Matthey for the commercial side of things, right? Because you had a commercial role in Johnson Matthey and I used to have a lot of discussions with you. So back then itself, I knew that I wanted to sit in that interface between commercial and technical world. And that's kind of what I evolved into, <laughs> to lack of a better word, uh, in Johnson Matthey itself. Um, I was very much involved in the commercial dealings as well by the end of my career there. Um, and here as well in Basecamp, I sit in between that. So it's a very techno-commercial job. It's not pure science. I'm not doing what I used to do the first couple of years I was in Johnson Matthey. Um, I still do that because I like it and I'm into it. But I also like to talk about the science and talk about and get people excited about what a massive impact this is going to have, not just on a person's scientific life, but the company that they're working for and the world as a whole. You know, Imagine you could solve all the processes in chemistry right now with an enzyme and make a sustainable world you know, for your children, that is something to to really go after. Now, especially after becoming a dad, I even want this future even more. Of course, right. of course. Mm -hmm. and, and knowing that, you know, what you do can really, you know, change the world. You got to you got to make a dent. <laughs> yeah, no, and this resonates with me. You know, you know how much I care about, you know, scientific education and, you know, making science accessible. And some of the drivers for this podcast is, is really that, you know, having these sort of conversations like you're having today and and, and having some people magically listening to it i still can't believe that there's so many people interested in that but you know if we get one more person into what we're trying to do you know i think there's there's enough of uh you know this ivory tower of science right i i i think i think there's there's, there's a much needed uh, uh you know moment for science to become more accessible and less less cryptic uh, and, and you know be more embracing and welcoming Anyways, I mean, before before the team jumps in and 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 stop us, could say, hey, you know, I could probably go on for three hours with you. You've been through uh, quite a lot of experiences and evolution in your life, in your career. You know, um, um, you you've seen what real hardcore traditional industrial chemistry is with your years in Johnson Matthew. Now you're working at you know some you know the forefront or completely new thinking and and, and innovation and, and research is kind of exciting you meet the two and you're probably in a quite rare position of being able to understand both are you still more driven about the science and you know the sort of the new horizons or do you think that making this very concrete down to earth and industrially applicable is is you know as important if not more I think I think both is equally important to me. And the big distinction is that in Johnson Matthey, I had to see through the industrialization as well. But here I can see all the partners across the biotech industry trying to see through the industrialization while I sit on the on the kind of the, the cutting edge technology. Exactly. Right. So I'm, I feel like I'm part of both worlds, even though I'm indirectly not part of the industrialization world anymore. This is great, great place to be. And uh, I've had so many interesting conversations across the whole biotech industry here. And everyone's trying to solve a very exciting problem. And all these exciting problems, you know, we were talking about some problems maybe less uh, fascinating, but actually, scientifically, every single one is exciting. So I'm, I'm kind of in the perfect um, place where I can value everyone's work and see the coolness, the coolness that underlies their work. Um, and that's a brilliant, brilliant thing. Uh, I think a lot of people strive for this kind of work-life balance and happiness. So I feel like I've always had that in both in Johnson Matthey and in Basecamp. I'm really happy for you, mate. You know, it's, you, you speak like you found your place in the world. So it's really, it's really nice to hear. 
you know, and now, you know, you, you made me curious because you, you, you were mentioning that you're so close. So you probably need to have like a catch up soon enough, right? Uh, once I start hearing, you know, seeing you more on the news or out, out there, you know, with some of the breakthroughs. So, yeah, but uh, you know what's going to happen. If we have a beer, then we're going to start talking about the science of fermentation and the beer and why it tastes this way. <laughs> so, it's always been like that. Um, yeah. The nerdiness, you can't get rid of it, can you? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyways, I, I always close my uh, interviews with the same questions, uh, right? Um, and the, the answers are always fascinating to me. You know, now that you have gone through quite a bit and you have developed your own experience and, and, and sort of position in the, in the world of science, you know, what, what would be a piece of advice you would give to someone, somebody who's just starting out? I don't know, a new, a new graduate, a new scientist or somebody entering this world. I think that's a really, really good question. And um, when I was doing my undergrad and my PhD, I had a really good uh, guidance counselor in, um, in UCL who basically said, do what you actually like doing and see how it then fits in with the science you're going to be doing. So as I told you before, I really like computer gaming and computers in general. So they're like, well, then you should really think about computational biology first, not just lab uh, biology. So then I, then I was like, okay, fine. I'll, so I picked a module in bioinformatics in my second year. And then I got, okay, this is definitely something I want to have, but it's not the only thing I want to have. So what else can I learn? And then I did actually a kind of a business course in my a module in my third year. Because I also wanted to say, how can I then do what I'm doing and then go and sell it? Because I was really interested. So if you're a young graduate and you're very interested in a few things, always try and think, okay, um, how does the field that I want to go into use my skills and interests? If you see that whatever you're going to go into doesn't need any of your interests or skills, you're not going to be happy for long and you're going to be finding for the next thing. Um, uh, so that's, that's my biggest thing. Follow your heart, follow your gut instinct. And also don't be scared to fight against the status quo. I think this is a really, really key. What we usually do as young, um, uh, you know, very, very enthusiastic scientists, we tend to accept whatever is the status quo in a company or wherever you go in terms of the literature until you go to the next uh, phase of your scientific and you make discoveries that you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. You know, something's up here. That is science. So don't be afraid to voice your opinion. Yeah, you know, that's the whole, whole uh, process of science is about disproving. Uh, not proving uh, and um, so this is this is a key thing and you need to have the guts and conviction in your own data that was dr Hahir pushpanath biocatalysis partnerships leads at Basecamp research in london and another of my esteemed former colleagues at johnson Mathe. if you enjoyed this conversation you're sure to enjoy dr pushpanath's book video podcast and other content Look in the episode notes for a URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And consider sharing the episodes and the other episodes with curious friends or colleagues so they can join us for this great season. This episode was produced by Sarah Briganti, Matt Ferris and Matthew Stock.